For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome back to the 20th and Blake Street podcast. As always, presented to you by Mile High Sports. I'm your host, Cade Walker. And the late, great Yogi Berra was known for a myriad of odd and funny sayings. But as a player myself, the one that always stuck out to me was when he said, baseball is 90% mental and the other half is physical. Now, not only is this an entertaining quote on its own, but it really reflects on the nature of baseball as a sport and how mentally heavy it is. I've played with dozens of guys with incredible physical tools, but they could never put it together upstairs. And as a result, they never saw close to the level of success that they were capable of. On the other hand, I've seen very average physical athletes dominate because of their elite and above average mental athleticism, if there be such a thing. But their mindset and mental fortitude allowed them to overcome their mediocrity in the physical department. Um, And that's just how baseball is. It's somewhat of an accepted truth in baseball for decades, even if it's been under-discussed. There's even a name for the condition that happens when a player who previously had success suddenly stopped having success um, for unexplained but entirely mental reasons, and that's the yips. The most extreme case of the yips that most people remember is Rick Ankeel, who dominated his rookie season, um, was shelled in his first postseason outing, and then after that outing, he was not really able to throw the ball relatively close to home plate. Um, So he had to convert to an outfielder. There's, That's one end of the spectrum, and then at the other end you have more mild cases, such as John Lester. Now, John Lester is a more mild case, um, but he's been able to carve out a very successful major league career, yet he has the yips. The mild case reflects itself in John Lester's inability to pick off to first base. Uh, John Lester has won a World Series, and he's been a very high-level pitcher for many years, but he still can't throw the ball to first base in a simple pickoff move, and it's just a mental block for him. Now, falling somewhere on this spectrum um, is a player that's relevant to the Rockies now, and it's Daniel Bard. Daniel Bard started his career as a very successful relief pitcher for the Boston Red Sox. In his second full season as a reliever, he posted an ERA of 1.39. He had an incredible repertoire. Um, Fastball in the upper 90s, could even touch triple digits. Sinker with good movement, an electric slider. Um, And he was considered to be an up-and-coming closer until his walk rate more than doubled, from three walks per nine innings in 2011 to six and a half walks per nine innings in 2012. Now, this wasn't as dramatic as Rick Ankeel's yips, but it was a mental block that caused him to lose control and thus caused him to lose the dominance that he had 
in uh, his, his seasons with the Red Sox. So Bard talked about this, and he discussed this with MLB.com. And he said to them, quote, Throwing a baseball is supposed to be an automatic action. For someone who's done it as much as I have, it should be as automatic as walking for anybody else. And it was for a long time. And then all of a sudden it wasn't. Imagine th- something as simple as walking becoming something where you had to literally think of the angle of your knee, the pressure you're putting into the ground on every step. It would make walking very frustrating. It would turn into a grind. And that's exactly what throwing became to me. End quote. See, baseball is a very interesting sport because it combines the fineness and the fine movements of sports like golf, where you have to be very fine with your swing, um, and it combines them with the quickness and the reactionary capability of other fast-paced sports like tennis or basketball. Um, now, I'm not necessarily saying that those other sports are less um, skillful than baseball, necessarily, but I think baseball combines the um, the necessity to be very, very fine with your movements but also be able to time them, uh, do them in a very quick fashion, and do them very rapidly. See, pitchers, in order to succeed at a major league level, you have to be able to use essentially your entire body in one fluid motion, um, to, and you have to do it repeatedly. Uh, with pitching and hitting, you have to do these, mo- these movements and these fine motor movements uh, thousands of times, you have to do them uh, very repeatedly in practice, in bullpens, in the batting cage, uh, in order to not think about them. Um, see, what Daniel Bard explained that his problem was that he was thinking about uh, where he was in space. Now, uh, my high school athletic director, he played for the Redskins for, I think, seven years. Um, he was also our lifting coach. He, uh, We sort of had this inside joke of the baseball team. Um, we would quote him every now and then, and he'd say, a real athlete knows where he is in space. And this is just as true in all sports across the board. But specifically in baseball and in pitching, you have to know where you are in space, and you can't think about where you are in space. You have to be... It has to be an instinctual thing. It has to be subconscious, and that's why these people do drills thousands of times, and they spend so much time on their fine motor skills. Um... With Daniel Bard losing that, it it was essentially him him thinking overnight, and he can't throw a baseball consistently, um, and he wasn't able to do that for several years. So after his stint in Boston, he find he signed several small deals with five different teams uh, to try and salvage his career. Um, he even said that at some point, one of the, the later contracts that he signed, he tried to convert to a submarine pitcher. Now, that seems like an int- not necessarily a bad step, but when he was with Boston, he was throwing 100 miles an hour over the top, and he was dominating. Now, trying to fool guys with topspin fastballs from down low, it's a completely different approach uh, mentally, and it would probably be a big confidence killer to go from utter dominance to trying to fool trying to fool guys with submarine pitches. So after these experiments didn't succeed, he retired and moved into a coaching role and more of a mental health coaching role. 
So after playing catch with some of his guys, they noticed that he hadn't really lost his touch physically. Um, he was still strong, and he was still throwing the ball hard. So he got back on a mound and was humming about mid-90s and was still throwing strikes with ease. After a few bullpens, uh, the Rockies signed him to a minor league deal, and so far he's been very impressive in spring training. Uh, in fact, he's been so impressive that as of July 17th, Bud Black informed Bard that he had made the final 30-man opening day roster. Now taking a guy who hasn't played in an MLB game since April 27th, 2013, to a player who made the 30-man opening day roster in 2020, that's a very impressive move, in my opinion. Alex Spear of the Boston Globe mentioned on Twitter, he said, Bard has basically done the impossible twice. Players almost never come back from the control woes he experienced in A-ball in 2007. He fast-tracked to big league dominance by 2009, but this is amazing. A pitcher who reinvented himself and retired many times over seven years. So Spear confirms that this isn't the first time that Bard has overcome control issues. Uh, but this is definitely the more severe time because before he stayed in the same organization and then he rose to dominance really quickly. This time he was out of baseball for a couple of years. Uh, but it's honestly even more impressive this time around. Now, the hope for Bard, for the Rockies, is to be a productive middle reliever. Um, I'll discuss why, more specifically in the second segment of this show, uh, why relief pitching is so important to the Rockies now. Um, But Bard has the tools, because his repertoire at his peak included an upper 90s sinker with very solid arm side run um, and a very solid breaking pitch. So it looks like he's maintained at least mid-90s velocity so far, and his sinker uh, seems like it's still effective. Um, And he discussed this as well. He said that his sinker still, uh, paraphrasing, his his sinker still looked really effective, even at elevation. He was worried about it uh, because he wouldn't be throwing at sea level or close to sea level, uh, but it still seems like it's an effective pitch. So hopefully Bard... Um, can be salvaged, and the Rockies could use him. Um, it would be a great situation, a win-win for both of those guys. Now, this is a great story on its own, and hopefully the Rockies can benefit from this. Um, the Rockies are really used to these kind of moves. Low-risk, moderate-reward type deals. We signed Ubaldo uh, Jimenez for spring training this year. Uh, he didn't really pan out. In years past, we signed Matt Holliday, and Ryan Howard to minor league deals. They didn't really pan out. This year we signed Matt Kemp to a minor league deal, and it looks like um, at this point he's in contention to be the um, the designated hitter, and at least he'll be a contributing bench bat. Um, more news on, on Matt Kemp in the second segment as well. Um, but I did want to dedicate that first segment to Daniel Bard because it's a very good story, and it does speak to the progression that Major League Baseball has made in terms of the mental evaluation of athletes. Um, like I said before, like Yogi Berra was, he acknowledged it um, in a sort of a comedic way that mental, the mental aspect of baseball is very, very important. Um, but only recently has sports psychology been so prevalent um, and this recent trend has definitely allowed players like Daniel Bard to benefit. And hopefully players won't, we won't see as many cases as of the yips, 
Not that they were common to begin with, but hopefully we won't see them because they are definitely uh, surmountable through innovations in psych in uh, sports psychology. Um, so that's that's the first segment. I'll jump into the second segment now um, after this break. Second segment, we're going to talk about a little bit of Rockies news, some roster moves that they have made. Uh, as well as answering some questions that I received on Twitter. Um, just just a heads up, I will be tweeting every now and then that I'm recording an episode. And as I do that, uh, if you guys could leave a comment or a tweet, a uh, quote tweet, whatever, uh, you could even DM me any questions that you have about the Rockies and I'll address them on the show. Uh, my... Handle on Twitter as is Cade C A D E Walker NBA uh, because I cover the NBA as well. So if you want to have any questions answered, just let me know on Twitter. Uh, my DMs are open. Uh, with that, we'll take a break and get back to the second segment. have made some very exciting moves the past couple days, at least for Rockies fans. Not only the Daniel Bard thing, which I think is a very inspiring story on its own, but the Rockies have placed Brian Shaw and Jake McGee on waivers. That means neither of them will be on the roster come opening day. Jake McGee and Brian Shaw, as most Rockies fans are aware of, were part of a infamous bullpen trilogy that was supposed to become a super bullpen between those two Jake McGee Shaw and um, Wade Davis obviously that didn't work out the Rockies didn't end up having a super bullpen Um, but um, at least with this move the Rockies admit that that didn't work and that they will move forward to uh, a new era in their bullpen (laughs) So this uh, this has some roster implications. So Brian Shaw was a right-handed relief pitcher, and Jake McGee was a left-handed relief pitcher. So now with Kyle Freeland being the only left-handed pitcher that has essentially totally confirmed a roster spot so far, the loss of Jake McGee likely guarantees that both James Pazos and Philip Deal will make the roster as left-handed pitchers out of the bullpen. Um, so that's, that's an interesting development. I expected Pazos, uh, I fully expected Pazos to make the roster. Um, he had a good year, a good year, a couple years ago, he had a really good profile. Um, as I mentioned in my last episode, um, deal, I was less sure about. He had an excellent spring training, um, spring training 1.0 to be specific, but I wasn't sure if he was quite ready for the major leagues. Uh, but it seems like the Rockies think that he is. Uh, so he'll be probably the second left-hander out of the pen. He'll probably come come in after. Um, at least Pazos will be prioritized above him for now. So that's, uh, that's some decent news. Um, hopefully they can be more productive than Jake McGee. In a similar roster move, the Rockies also confirmed that Matt Kemp and Chris Owings were guaranteed full roster spots on the 30-man opening day roster. Um, I discussed Matt Kemp a little bit last week. 
I imagine he'll be used as a bench bat. Um, but as I did mention, Bud Black did confirm that the designated hitter spot was in contention right now, and that's between Matt Kemp and Daniel Murphy. So I think he does have some intrigue. He has upside. He His last full season of batted ball profile was excellent. Um, he was, like I said, 16th in the league in expected slugging percentage. So he certainly has upside. Uh, he's been making his power very clear. Uh, he's been hitting balls into the second deck pretty frequently. He's still got the strength. Um, we'll see how well he does against big league pitching consistently, but he has been performing uh, decently in the inner squad scrimmages that have been going on. So we'll see how he goes, um, but I would not like to see him in the field. He's always been a poor defender, and at age 35, I wouldn't expect any improvement on that. Um, Owings, on the other hand, is someone who I've never really considered to be a good bat. Um, and he never really has been. He hasn't had a positive WRC plus season um, in his entire career. But he has been a plus defender, and he's been a plus defender at multiple positions. Uh, potentially, that's a valuable thing for the Rockies. He's always been a plus outfielder. Uh, actually, the only position he hasn't been positive in is at shortstop. Um, and with Trevor Story, I doubt he'll be seeing many innings there. Uh, however, he can play second base, he can play third base, likely won't be playing third base, but he can play second base, he can play um, all three outfield spots, and he can do it well, uh, at least according to the outs above average metric on baseball savant. Uh, so he provides some more depth, mostly defensive depth, um, but this depth adds some flexibility even if he hasn't been an above average hitter. Also, Charlie Blackman is back, and he's raking. He hit a leadoff home run in the scrimmage on the 18th, which is the today where uh, when I'm recording. Um, so, good good thing he looks like he hasn't lost a step. Um, he's an excellent hitter, and he works on himself very very well. He has one of the better work ethics that um, that you can find on the Rockies. Um, so that's the news that I have for you today. Um, and I have three questions that I will answer from Twitter. The first of which is from at take a hike on Twitter. And he asked, what position do you think the Rockies would be wise to prioritize their spending on this coming off season? Um, so I think a lot of this does have to revolve around this season and the performances that they'll get out of some guys like Rymel Tapia. Um, like, do the Rockies pursue an outfielder if Rymel Tapia starts hitting well? Uh, maybe not. Um, but I, I've ordered them in three, the top three needs, I think, for next offseason. Um, number one, I think, is you have to solidify the back of the rotation. I talked about it last week, how the back of the rotation looks kind of grim. Um, I, I probably would expect Antonio Sensatella and Chichi Gonzalez to start off as the four and five this year. Um, and that's not ideal. Uh, I think Sensatella has upside. Chichi Gonzalez doesn't have as much upside. He's a floor guy that can eat innings. Now you want to be able to win some of those games, right? Um, the four where your four and five guys are starting. Um, there's a couple decent options in free agency next year. I think Chase Anderson would make a good back of the rotation guy. He has the profile that I think would play at Coors Field, and he wouldn't get shelled. Um, he keeps the ball on the ground, keeps uh, hitters 
and he, he induces poor contact. So I think that would be a, a kind of guy that you'd want as a four or five guy. Um, maybe a three guy, depending on how Kyle Freeland does this year as well. Jake Odorizzi um, could also be a good three, four guy. If, um, again, if Freeland doesn't pan out, he might be slightly expensive. I believe he's 32 this offseason, so we'll see how uh, how that goes and see how much money the Rockies are willing to spend on starting pitching. Um, and maybe they did save some money because they didn't sign anybody to a major league deal in this past offseason. A couple of the more expensive options would be Mike Miner from Texas and Alex Wood from the Dodgers. Uh, Wood's only on a $4 million deal with the Dodgers. Took a very hometown healthy deal. Um, he was only 30. So he'll be 31 uh, next offseason, and I think he'll be very affordable uh, and probably more expensive than, say, Odorizzi or Chase Anderson, but I still think he'll be affordable enough, and he'll he'll also be a good, I think, maybe ups, with good upside at middle of the rotation. He's not an ace-type guy, but um, he can he can win some ball games for you. And Mike Miner, on the other hand, um, he was one of the better pitchers in the American League last year, so he would be more expensive. Um, but I, again, at the same time, I think he'd be cheaper than um, than more the higher end guys that are free agents next year. Um, so yeah, I think Mike Miner would be more expensive. I don't know if the Rockies would be willing to spend that much on a starter, considering that they have Gray and Marquez sitting at the top of their rotation, but Mike Miner does have the tools. I think he has the profile that would succeed at Coors Field. So that's the the first priority, in my opinion. Second priority next offseason, depending, this is very contingent on a few a few things. So first of all, if the National League decides to keep the designated hitter, outfield becomes more important. If Raimel Tapia doesn't break out this year, outfield becomes significantly important. If Dahl or Hilliard don't perform as well as they need to, or if one of them gets hurt, knock on wood, then corner outfield becomes all the more valuable. And if any of these things happen, I believe um, the Rockies should prioritize at least one corner outfielder, um, and preferably an above-average one. Uh, I, I, pro- I profiled two guys, I think, that could fit with the Rockies next year. Um, probably, again, slightly on the more expensive side, but I think they'll be worth it. Um, Jock Peterson, he's an excellent batted ball profile. He's very strong, um, and he is... And uh, he's an average defender at least, so he could probably fill a corner spot. Now, Michael Brantley uh, is the other guy. He's going to be 34, so on the older side. Um, But he's an excellent bat, and I don't expect to see any of his bat production drop too much. Maybe his power, um, but probably not his bat production. Um, And he hasn't been an excellent defender recently. He's been probably a slightly below average defender. Um, But... He more than makes up for it on the offensive end. And after this, and perhaps more importance, would be a defensively capable catcher with offensive upside. Um, Specifically, veteran catchers with offensive upside. Now, I picked three guys that will be free agents that I think the Rockies could go after. 
Um, two of which are guys that I highlighted that I think the Rockies should have signed this last offseason, but we decided to roll in with Tony Walters, Drew Butera, and potentially um, Elias Diaz and Dom Nunez. But I think a solid catcher that would play at least every other day would be Jason Castro. Um, he had an excellent batted ball profile last year. Like He was very, very underrated, and, and I think he's going to have a very solid year for the Angels this year. Um, and he was also an above-average defensive catcher. Alex Avila, uh, again, I think would be probably more defensively sound than Jason Castro, but with less offensive upside, even though he still draws a lot of walks, he has a great eye, um, and he still puts the ball in play very frequently. Doesn't Not a high strikeout numbers kind of guy. And then uh, the third guy I had on this list was Wilson Ramos. Um, he's coming off of a contract with the... The Mets, where he's sort of been a little bit disappointing, I think, to the Mets, but I think the Rockies could salvage um, his bat. He still hits the ball hard, um, and I think that'll play at Coors Field. Um, but still, defensively, he's been great, and he's a veteran guy that I think would uh, sync up well with the pitchers uh, in the pitching staff and the pitching rotation. I think that's definitely something that would be valuable. Uh, so for defensive purposes, Wilson Ramos would be solid. And he does have some offensive upside. So the next one, I didn't get a question, but I received a comment from the Hamburglar. Um, and he said, please tell me I don't have to watch Murphy play first. So I'm going to break it down into good news and bad news. So the bad news is that you're going to have to watch Murphy play first every now and then. Um, the good news is that he probably won't be playing first for the most part. Like I said earlier, Bud Black's leaning between Murphy and Kemp for the designated hitting spot. Ryan McMahon should play most games at first base, I'd wager, especially since the Rockies want to develop Brendan Rodgers as a second baseman. And with Ryan McMahon being the younger guy, they'll probably have him play first base um, more often, I'd say. Um also, Murphy isn't even that bad defensively at first. He's a little flat-footed sometimes now in his old age. But he was a positive defender by defensive run save last year, so cut the slander. <laughs> Anyways, um, I think the Rockies are really optimistic about Ryan McMahon uh, as a first baseman um, and as a player in general. Uh, the hitting coach, Dave Magadan, believes that he can be an all-star very soon, maybe as soon as this year. Um, his batted ball profile is essentially identical to pre-MVP Christian Yelich. Uh, I'll give you a little rundown on that. Christian Yelich in 2017 had an average exit velocity of 90.4. Ryan McMahon last year had an average exit velocity of 91.4. Christian Yelich's average launch angle was 4.7. Ryan McMahon's average launch angle was 8.4. The hard hit percentage for Christian Yelich in 2017 was 46.1. Ryan McMahon in 2019 was 47.7. Their expected weighted on base average on contact was within six points of each other. Their ground ball percentage was within four percent of each other. And their walk percentages were also within one percent of each other. Um, so I think they're, they're very similar in terms of they hit the ball really hard. And they do it very often. I think... Both of them needed to make the adjustment where they needed to raise their launch angle. They needed to lift some balls some more because if you hit some balls really hard on the ground, probably going to get 
um, get caught, hit it right to a fielder. But if you hit it in the air, you're definitely more likely for it to go out, find a gap. There's three outfielders in a large outfield, and you'd probably rather hit it out there than a smaller infield. Um, that's mostly just common sense, but at the same time, it's definitely a difficult adjustment to make. But if anyone can do it, I believe Ryan McMahon can do it. The third and final tweet that I'm going to answer in this episode uh, is from Isaac Bagarian. Uh, he tweeted at me, he asked what the role of Kemp will be. He asked, uh, is Davis Oberg the closer? Expectations of Daniel Bard? And why do we have to watch Charlie Blackman in right field when he's awful defensively? Why can't he play left field or as the DH? So I'll answer these one at a time. Um, I did explain the role of Kemp. I think he'll be a bench bat, um, and he will compete to be designated a hitter, probably start some games at DH even if he loses that starting battle. Um, in re- regards to the closer, I believe Bud Black has already named Wade Davis the closer. Um, I would have very much liked to see a platoon split. I would have liked Wade Davis to close on the road and Scott Oberg to close at home. Um, Wade Davis very clearly had some struggles at Coors Field. Would have liked to see a little bit of a split there, um, but I think Bud Black knows what he's doing there at least. Um, we'll see how that pans out for next or for this season. Expectations of Daniel Bard. Um, I think I think they're going to ease him into it, um, ease him into being a middle reliever. I don't expect him to take a huge role in the bullpen immediately. Um, and I probably don't even expect him to take a huge role in the bullpen at all, but he will eat some innings here and there. I think he'll, um, I think he'll be okay. It just depends on how he performs early in the season to fully answer what role we'll see from him uh, later in the season or past the season. Regarding Charlie's defense in right field, yeah. Um, Charlie is definitely a below-average defender in the outfield, um, and I probably would have preferred to see him as the DH, but unfortunately, um, you, you'd have to take... Uh, you'd have to decide between Matt Kemp's bat and, say, like, Ramel Tapia's bat. You, there's just so many factors into deciding, uh, well, hey, are you going to prioritize defense all the way? Because I think Tapia would be able to be at least a starting level defensive player. He would be a significant upgrade over Charlie Blackman um, defensively. But at the same time, you would be getting a below average bat, um, potentially at least for now. Uh, The move to left field, though, I think is probably decent. Um, Left field, though, is, I think, slightly bigger than right field at Coors. Um, But in terms of arm, Blackman's arm isn't nearly as good as, say, Sam Hilliard's. Um, or David Dahl's, uh, even though I'd probably start David Dahl uh, in center and Sam Hilliard in right field, personally, um, if I had to arrange those three, because Sam Hilliard has the better tools to make that long throw uh, from right field to third base or to home plate um, than Blackman does. I think he is better equipped for it. So that's all the content that I'm going to bring to you guys today. Uh, Thank you for tuning in and... Uh, you know, like, retweet, subscribe, share. Um, Thank you for listening to the 20th and Blake Street podcast. I'll see you next time. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. 
But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.